welcome to The Lover's Hole, a Patrick O'Brien podcast. Just like before, you're with Ian. And with Mike. And Mike and I are reading our way through the Aubrey Battery novels of author Patrick O'Brien. So, Mike, could you please catch us up? We were doing something different last week, weren't we? How is that going to be related to what's coming up this week? Oh, I'd be delighted, Ian. Yeah, last week on the podcast, you heard our Crossing the Line music playlist special, which directed you to a couple of Lover's Hole playlists of music that we've encountered in the canon so far, or kind of Patrick O'Brien adjacent. Now, the week before that, in Chapter 9 of the Yellow Admiral, we ended with the prospect of an end to the current war, a paying off for the crew of the Bologna, and the likelihood of a long-awaited mission to South America for Jack and Stephen. This week in Chapter 10, the final chapter, Jack and Stephen return to London to attend the meetings, which may determine the future of Jack's naval career. There's some time at home for them, a surprise makeover, vacation with the family, courtesy of the Chileans, and an even bigger surprise. Wow, lots of surprises to get into here. Some clues in the names there, I think. Let's take a look at what happens. Let's take a look at what's happening as the chapter opens. We're joining our heroes after the paying off is finished. So the Bologna is alongside. The crew is now really starting to break up and go their separate ways. We are learning, though, that the paying off has not gone well for the Bologna. There are other ships that were newer into the blockading squadron. They had paid off first. And I think that the crew of the Bologna had been hoping for first in, first out. But that was clearly not going to happen. That had upset about 50 of what we call the awkward buggers, the ones who were inclined to make trouble, the ones who'd been pressed from merchantmen who wanted to rejoin maybe a high-paying merchantman quickly while hands were still short, given that you know n- naval journeys are going to be fewer and further between now that peace is here. There was little incentive then, sadly, to keep the ship up to a high state of cleanliness. Everybody knew that it's heading for the dockyard. It's going to be laid up in ordinary. And all this had led to what the author calls short answers, ill will and sullen looks, though to no deliberate insolence or failure to obey orders, not even the first smell of mutiny. So that's good because we know that Jack's been there before. But even so, we've got this slightly niggly atmosphere. We've got quibbles about the paying off, about the delay, an extra day, it turns out, of delay for Bellona's release when her turn did finally come around. And it's it's not only Jack that has a has a perspective on this, right? Right. Well, leaving in a carriage with Stephen, you know, Stephen said, well, it all ends well. And Jack's like, you know, no, I, 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 he doesn't think this is well. He's not happy. You know, he's thinking that his ship looks like a sea scarecrow waiting to go into ordinary. And he's further depressed by a group of whores that are waiting for the Bolognas, who, as O'Brien says, are still capable of walking, you know, to come out of the prize agent's office. So, uh, you know, O'Brien says, the strong, unforgiving sun on their rattled faces, dyed hair, flimsy, tawdry, and dirty clothes was a melancholy sight. And in adding to that vibrant description, O'Brien tells us what Jack hears them singing. Right. And here are the lyrics. I do love a jolly sailor. Blithe and merry might he be. And then later on, the verse continues. Sailors, they get all the money. Soldiers, they get none but brass. I do love a jolly sailor. Soldiers, they may kiss my arse. And there you go. That's my my northern accent failing to rhyme brass and arse. And, (laughs) 
It's funny, I had never really bothered to find out whether this was an authentic set of lyrics or something that O'Brien had sourced somehow. But a recording of a modern day version of it exists online. If you want to go back to the second of our two Crossing the Line playlists, it's in there. There's a song by Eliza Carthy in a an album of kind of shanty-inspired and seafaring-inspired folk songs from a few years ago. And uh, take, take a listen. I think the musical style is pretty now, but the lyrics are dead on what O'Brien has been writing about here. And Jack finds it all, I think, particularly depressing He's got this sadness as well left behind from this rather superficially cheerful farewell dinner that he had just given for his officers. And we know that Jack sets a lot of store by the social goodwill among the officers, and he really likes feasts to mark the emotional high points of life at sea. And he's kind of a bit let down that this one was a bit of a damp squib by the sound of it. They had all been spending the dinner trying their best to disguise the extreme anxiety that these officers all felt about getting another ship. Sad times for Jack. Ah, I think I think Stephen does a great job. He decides, seeing Jack's mood, to direct the post chase to take side roads. And, you know, O'Brien gives us this beautiful description about, you know, traveling through the charming country, the spring weather, the clear blue sky, the fresh breeze, all of this in marked contrast to this really wicked, brutal winter they just endured on the Brest blockade. And they're, they're at the halfway in. They're walking up and down together while the horses are changed. And Stephen tells Jack that he'd gotten some letters that he'd read while Jack was dealing with the paying out, letters from London. And, you know, he wants to know if Jack wants to know what their plan is going forward. Jack, Jack does. And Stephen says, well, you know, he thinks they should take a few days holiday at Black's in London before they'll be meeting with these representatives from Chile at the Grapes, at Stephen's Room in the Grapes. Then they'll spend a few days listening to music before a meeting at the Admiralty for what Stephen calls the necessary formalities. And Jack asks if that is the meeting that will remove him from the list. And Stephen says, well, you know, I think suspend, not remove, suspend is a better word. You know, it'll suspend you so you can command a hired ship, a private vessel with a private person as a master. And Jack says he's just glad the Admiralty meeting won't be on a Friday, you know, an unlucky day. We, Real sad sack, Jack, here. <laughs> he, he really is, isn't it? I mean, of course, he's a sure, so we get this reversal. Jack at sea is the kind of ebullient, everything's going to be okay, live life in the moment. And a sure, Jack is beset by troubles, by his anxiety about what's going to happen in this meeting. And Stephen's trying to sort of put it in perspective for him. He says, Jack, it does not require great discernment to see that the idea of being removed from the list scarcely fills you with delight. No, it don't. My dear, if you have any reluctance at all, let us forget the scheme entirely. And Jack says, no, no, no. They, I, mean, I think he appreciates Stephen was being generous in saying, we can back out of this anytime. But he t- describes himself as being foolishly hipped, you know, put out by seeing the ship and the company falling to pieces, by seeing his poor penniless midshipman thrown on the world without a bean and without the chance of a ship, not even half pay. And he knows that with half the Navy being laid up because of the end of the war and with the malign influence of Admiral Lord Stranraer against him personally, he has got no hope of a command. And with no command, that means he's likely to be yellowed when the time comes. So as Jack says to himself, you know, his his rational self is grateful to have the opportunity to take the surprise around the horn and to get the possibility for some kind of distinction for himself. But Mike, I think he's 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 still anxious about this and he kind of betrays himself a bit with what comes next. 
He, he does. We get this burst of Aubreyisms in, in, you know, in a really nice uh, description by Jack. Jack's talking to Stephen. He says, no, no, my dear Stephen, please forgive me. It was only a weak, foolish burst of superstition. Lycanthropy might be a better word, perhaps. Perhaps it would. But tell me, Jack, you've not forgotten the promise of reinstatement, have you? Oh, dear me, no. I cling to it night and day like a bull in a china shop. <laughs> what? Says Jack, promises are made of pie crust, you know. First lords can die and be replaced by wicked goddamn wigs. Oh, I beg pardon, brother. By people belonging to another party who know not Abraham. Whereas one's name printed in that beautiful list is as solid as anything can be in this shifting world. Here today, gone tomorrow. He uh, break down these Aubreyisms here in this, in this beautiful passage, which goes right to the state of Jack's uh, emotional self here. It really does. He's he's kind of showing more than a flash of what's going on in his psyche here. And lycanthropy, this is another one of these moments, Mike, where I've read past this many times before, but digging into it for the show gives me the pleasure of finding out what, what kind of a mistake he's making. I suspect he meant to say misanthropy, meaning just a, a dislike, a suspicion of people. But lycanthropy is a classic Aubreyism. It means believing you're a werewolf. It's, it's connected to all kinds of ancient European mythology about shape-shifting. I can't think of any deep symbolism about why it might be telling that Jack believes he's a werewolf. But I think it's just a, a funny misplaced word. And again, I can imagine O'Brien had gone, lycanthropy. Oh, that's a weird idea. That's an interesting word. I'll put that on a card and wait for a moment for Jack to, to misstate it somehow. And I'm, I'm sure it wasn't O'Brien's intent, but you know, when I tripped across this, all I could think of was a conversation between Remus Lupin, you know, one of my favorite werewolves, and Stephen Matcher. <laughs> These two guys would find each other fascinating. So. Ah, that, that's a Netflix crossover TVR drama waiting to be made. <laughs> there you go. But that wasn't the only Aubreyism, was it? No, that's right. The, the other one is he said, uh, I cling to it day and night like a bull in a china shop. And it, it's funny, first of all, because... You, you cling cling to things in all sorts of ways, perhaps not day and night. You might cling like a leech, might have been what he was thinking of. And of course, a bull in a china shop does many things, but it doesn't cling. <laughs> but maybe bull in a china shop is pretty apt for some of the consequences that Jack might have if he loses control of his cool here. Nah, nah. Well, in London, Jack is comforted as they arrive at Black's and he sees the fire you know, set the way it's always set. You know, he says, there's no wild, enthusiastic changes here. You know, and in the midst of all these changes for himself and for the Navy, you know, Jack comments on Blacks as a place where things are going to be in his son's time when, you know, when George is a member, just the way they were in Jack's time and in Jack's father's time. So the two of them decide they want to, you know, get changed, go to the library, catch up on what happened while they were away. And we've got Stephen diving into the stack of newspapers, Jack, of course, diving into the Naval Chronicle. And reading through, Jack announces they've given Boney the island of Elba. And he tells Stephen about Napoleon's exile to Elba, taken there by Captain Tom Usher, an Irishman, he says, on HMS Undaunted. You know, all of this, you know, late April 1813, very historically yeah. accurate. You know, Jack reading back about this. So another mention of an Irish name that can't go by without us digging into it a little bit. And in the next round of conversation, Jack asks Stephen if he had known this person, Tom Usher. And Stephen said, yeah, I, I knew some Ushers at Trinity, meaning Trinity College, Dublin. Uh, and he says, the family has a habit of being Archbishops of Armagh. Protestant Archbishops, of course. Oh, that's good. Nice way to put it. A habit of being Archbishops. 
And Jack wonders then if these were important people, which is a slightly, slightly disrespectful thing to say. But anyhow, Stephen says they these Protestant archbishops of Armagh are important at the castle, he says. Dublin Castle, where the Lord Lieutenant lives when he is not elsewhere. And we know that Stephen's referred to the castle and the institution and what it means for oppression in Ireland. And we'll come back to that in a second. Jack is really interested then in how Tom, Tom Usher, had become a post-captain before he was 30 and talks about all the gallant young men that he's got on his mind who have no interest, who are going to die as mere lieutenants or master's mates, even more so in the current situation post-war. Jack completely then misses the references to the division of the church in Ireland. He doesn't pick up that Stephen's making a point that there were these Protestant archbishops, Protestant churches being you know in a leading position in the north of the island and different from the Catholic Church, also using Armagh about the heritage of St. Patrick and Armagh, of course, having two St. Patrick's cathedrals from the two different traditions, the heads of both churches in the province being located there. And also misses the reference to Dublin Castle. You know, Stephen has referred to castle informers in the past. And of course, the castle was the seat of English power in Ireland until the revolution in the early 1900s. So, Mike, this is really, really great history. And this is history that you've been close to lately, right? Well, it is. It, I, I was just blown away by this because I, you know, I just got back from two weeks at all across Ireland, loved it. And and this, you know, can, preparing myself, I was reading a lot of this history, and and we actually had a chance to walk through Dublin Castle. We walked across Trinity to, you know, get a little Stephen Matron feel, feel a little bit smarter here. And and I was amazed by, you know, coming back and reading this paragraph again, how O'Brien manages to bring the echo of all that history, past history what will be future history for them into these few small references that Stephen makes here. And this continued woven in with, you know, Stephen's kind of concerns woven in with Jack's concerns about promotion in the Royal Navy being so uncertain. And and I love it in, in typical O'Brien fashion, how he wraps up the paragraph with all this going on by Jack saying, do you think we can have supper now? He's been asking, you know, could we have supper? Could we have supper? You know, but this, this, paragraph and this you know thing between Jack and Stephen echoes all the way back to master and commander with Jack right. and Stephen and Dylan you know and all this tension between stability and change the way we'd like things being uh, you know versus the way they are the differences in the way different people with different backgrounds different histories see things the way they are you know, we're looking at the same thing, but it's very, very different, very experienced differently. And boy, sitting in the pubs, talking to folks in Ireland, man, I was getting ears full of this. It was just <laughs> amazing, amazing how history lives through these people. Oh, fantastic. And J Jack and Stephen represent so much of that just in those two characters. It's really clever. Good stuff. So Jack gets his wish. You know, he's been hopping on about supper a few times now, and they do get to go in and eat. Um, they note that there are lots of sailors there who are staying in London to besiege the Admiralty with their claims in hopes of a ship. They greet Sir Joseph Blaine, who's there dining with a friend, uh, and they sit with our old pal, Henage Dundas, at the large round members table. At least, I think it's the table that's round rather than the members, but we'll leave that. <laughs> Stephen turns and greets his neighbour at the table, saying, ah, oh, I saw you last at the Academy of Ancient Music, and this neighbour, who we don't learn the name of, says, yes, so that they'll be singing a great deal of Talis tomorrow at the Academy. And true to form, Jack and Stephen head to the Academy of Ancient Music the next day, and we get this nice reflection. 
again, a, a truth about Stephen and Jack is that they, not only that they represent these different poles and different perspectives, but one of the things they have in common is the experience of music. And Jack gets, as O'Brien describes it to us, an inward piece from this music. Uh, he's been really, really stressed out by relinquishing command, by paying off, trying the best to get what he can in terms of preserving the careers for his men, especially he's thinking about two younger ones whose fathers had been killed as lieutenants and therefore leaving their families just a 50 pound a year pension. And also thinking about some elderly seamen that he knew who were not eligible for Greenwich for the hospital and had no one else to look to. But Mike, I, I just want to zip back to the Academy of Ancient Music here because this, this, this made my ears prick up. If you're like me, the name, the Academy of Ancient Music, rings true somewhere because the Academy of Ancient Music was actually an orchestra, still is an orchestra, founded by the, the, the Cambridge harpsichordist Christopher Hogwood back in the 1970s, right at the beginning of the big wave of interest in uh, playing 18th century music on period instruments and in authentic style or historically informed style. But that was a, a reincarnation of the name which had been out of use for a long time. The Academy of Ancient Music that O'Brien is talking to was founded in 1726 as a society, as they called it, to promote the study and practice of vocal and instrumental harmony. And therefore, this is a really nice reference. There's one slight snag, not what you'd call a howler, but a bit of a snag, which is that the Academy in that form at that time was disbanded, disbanded in 1802. So that's over a decade before the timeline that we are in here. And there's some great references online to the kind of programs that they performed at the old academy. It does seem that they did indeed perform a fair bit of Talis and Bird, those two being the most famous English composers of the Renaissance, especially composers of choral music in the Renaissance. And the academy also had lots of interest in later music in the Baroque Italian style, the style of the kind of century leading up to this time. Purcell, Corelli and Handel were big on their lists. But despite their slight anachronism, I love the idea that for, for Catholic Stephen Maturin, perhaps wanting to hear and enjoy pre-Reformation choral music, and we know that he's got a bit of a thing for pre-Reformation for Renaissance choral music, um, one of the few places in London where you could have got that in the Regency era would have been the Academy of Ancient Music, if only he could have gone 10 years back in time. And, uh, and Mike, and Talis is a great example as well. There's even a connection, of course, to the movie. Vaughan Williams' Fantasia on a piece by Thomas Talis was part of that big dramatic scene where uh, there's man overboard drama in Master and Commander, Far Side of the World. So, Ta Talis, nice reference. Academy of Ancient Music, really nice reference, if, if a few years off. And uh, that's not the only connection we're going to have to music in this chapter, right? No, no, we really do keep getting it. You know, the, the following two days, they spend a lot of time in the library. They also spend a lot of time at Hills on Bond Street, trying out different instruments. And then we get this, this really nice comic description of the time they spend playing billiards, you know, pitting Stephen, who O'Brien calls a much more theoretical player against Jack, who just loves to make, you know, huge breaks. And uh, as O'Brien says, taking the liveliest pleasure in the winning hazard. So yeah. in addition to this, they eat with the fellows of the Royal Society before attending the meeting at Somerset House that we've talked about before. Sir Joseph Banks, the president of the society, and we might add the subject of Patrick O'Brien's biography, Joseph Banks, a life. Sir Joseph Banks greets them 
And with the war open, he says he hopes that Dr. Matron will have some time for some serious botanizing, perhaps in the unknown region of Kamshakta. Uh, Sarah Palin, our, our vice presidential candidate, you know, used to say <laughs> that when she sat in Alaska, she could see Russia from there. Well, if she was looking a little bit south, she might have seen this unknown region that, uh, <laughs> that Sir Joseph Banks is directing Stephen towards. But he then remembers that Matron, like him, is also now married, which he calls a very comfortable and blessed state. And I, I kept, you know, kind of giggling to myself, thinking, "Yeah, as if that would keep Stephen home, right?" Yeah, exactly. Oh, I'm not going to be because I'm married now, right? <laughs> well, we we go from the sublime to what you might call the everyday, or at least the more concrete, because we are in a conversation between the Admiralty hydrographer and Jack. The Admiralty hydrographer gives Jack a significant look. And the surveyor of the Navy, by the name of Robert Seppings, described to us as the famous architect who'd strengthened the Bellona with diagonal bracing and trussing, Seppings asks how Bellona had done in the huge seas and the gales off of Brest. Jack says, really well, she was a tight ship, never more than six inches in the well. This, this sounds like a really great outcome. And st- stick a pin in this little remark. Seppings says that his son, Thomas, had set up a new shipyard at Poole, and was incorporating those same new principles into his shipbuilding and ship repair work. Now, this guy, Robert Seppings, of course, is the real deal. The Patrick O'Brien Muster book puts his dates as 1776 to 1840. He was a naval architect. He was indeed the surveyor of the Navy between 1813 and 1832, so spot on with the timings there. He was a member of the Royal Society. He was eventually knighted in 1819. And this bracing and trussing that we're talking about, act in shipbuilding, a little bit like the diagonal on a five-bar gate, they stop the frames from kind of from flexing, from hogging and sagging. Robert Seppings is real then, but the son Thomas that's described here is an invention of Patrick O'Brien. Um, the son's fictional yard here is reported to be at Poole, which is right next to Portsmouth. Uh, we've also heard about uh, young Seppings' yard being near Plymouth in other parts of the canon. So a, a, a little bit of backstory drift there, but Nothing we can get too excited about, I think, Mike. Well, after dinner and the meeting, Jack and Stephen are back at Stephen's room at the Grapes, and they're going through their arrangements for meeting the the entourage from Chile the next day. And Sarah and Emily stop by to say hello, and and they're you know they you know rushing in to see Stephen, and then they're like, oh oh my gosh, it's the captain, and and, and they're a little stiffened then. But later, Mrs. Broad tells Stephen and Jack that even the girls had stopped at it seeing the captain, you know, this towering figure from their youth aboard the ship. You know, they're not at all put off by the street merchants, and they're going to obtain the very best fish for tomorrow's dinner. Now, she asked Stephen if his guest tomorrow will speak English. And Stephen says, one's fairly fluent, the second can keep up, and the third can barely ask his way, which was O'Brien's nice way of setting us up for the conversations that follow the next day. Yeah. And this is a conversation between Stephen and these Chilean advisors and Jack. And we have to remember, of course, that Jack has completely got a cloth ear when it comes to foreign languages. Even so... The Chilean guests are very civil to Jack. They particularly seem to admire his great seagoing reputation. They are here, they say, to assess his size and moral capacity. And I love how, you know, does he, is he a big boy? Oh, yeah, he's a big boy. Stephen and one of them, this guy Garcia, get to discussing the finer points of the plan. And the two others are then begging Jack's pardon for them needing to continue in Spanish. 
Jack finds everybody pleasant company. And at the end of the dinner, they all shake hands. And Garcia says, very happy. So it's all gone pretty well so far. And afterwards, Stephen tells Jack that it's all looking great so far. He and Garcia are in complete agreement over the plan. Jack is going to survey the coast, the Chilean coast, in the surprise, sailing early next year with six months grace on either side, uh, with Jack free at any time to pull himself out of the scheme if England should find itself at war. Jack's going to help the Chileans to build up and train a small navy and to help them to defend themselves if Peru should declare its independence and on the back of that launch an attack on Chile. Jack is absolved of all duty toward them in any war that might involve England and any foreign power. Should we stick a pin in that? Let's stick a pin in that. They agree that there's going to be a a formal document, an agreement written for their masters on both sides. And when they appear before the committee, they're going to learn Jack's exact status with respect to the Admiralty. Stephen, though, believes that in any case, Jack's going to be given indefinite leave at his current rank and will be loaned out to the hydrographic department. And this is going to be part of the cover story. So when his survey in Chile is then done and Jack considers his task complete, he'll be able to return to be reinstated. That's the magic word with no loss of seniority. And in the meantime, of course, as Jack is hoping, there's an opportunity for service, for distinction, while most of his rivals for flag rank are sitting idly on shore or or drilling their ships in what he calls the peaceful, inglorious Mediterranean. So serves me right for taking what was on the page and then mangling it. <laughs> well, Jack thanks Stephen. He says he couldn't have asked for half as much. And he tells Stephen he thinks surprise will need strengthening for the horn, a job stepping son can do. So, ah, you know, this is coming back together. And he hopes out loud that the committee and the admiralty, in Jack's word, will look as though they love me in spite of everything. Stephen assures Jack that the committee is mostly friends and some well-inclined neutrals. Lord Stranra has very little, if any, influence with the committee. And for Monday's meeting, he advises Jack, in Stephen's word, to dress very soberly and well, to say nothing unless you're directly addressed, and then to keep your answers clear and short. Short! And at all times, to look both intelligent and attentive, but never cynical or amused. And boy, I thought, how, what great advice. We, we should have been yeah, teaching this yeah. in, in a lot of our classes. We really should. <laughs> I, I love this. But after supper, Jack says, you know, he's still very nervous about Monday and he wonders how in the world he's going to get through the weekend. Bless him. This is really hanging over Jack. And for, for Stephen, this is just another day in front of the committee. But for Jack, there's so much hanging on this. They, they try to take their minds off with a bit of entertainment. They spend Saturday at Greenwich checking on their former shipmates at the Great Naval Hospital there, and they return to London for a concert. Sounds like a great day out. On Sunday, after their respective church services, of course, Jack going to the Anglican Church and Stephen going to the Catholic Church, they hire two mild old grey mares, the grey mares that are sisters, and ride to Hampstead to explore the heath and their old haunts and we don't need to be reminded, Mike, that those are the, the haunts and the neighborhoods that they used to hang out in back in the old days of post-captain. And that right. makes us go, ah. Oh. Yeah. It's a great memory, isn't it, Ian? Isn't it just? So I'm not sure if it's enough to sustain Jack's mood. I think he's still a little bit anxious. Um, I have a feeling that Jack might also need you know, a bit of physical or even liquid sustenance. So just in case we are all feeling the same as Jack at the minute and in, in need of solid or liquid sustenance, Let's take a short break. 
and we'll pick it up again right after this. If you're enjoying the podcast, please come and join our supporters on Patreon. Go to patreon.com forward slash lovers hole. Welcome back. On Monday morning, Jack's nerves have stifled his appetite, and he's amazed to see this huge breakfast that Stephen is eating, and he wonders at Stephen's what he calls insensibility. Stephen tells him, it's strength of mind rather than insensibility. I'm perfectly aware that this interview may make the essential difference between your either being blued or yellowed in the fullness of time, but I bear the trial with a manly fortitude. <laughs> I, I don't know whether Stephen is making game of him or not here a little bit, but then Stephen kicks into you know to physician mode, and uh, and and I think you know his 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 good sense as a you know observer of people and uh, as, as a an agent. He advises Jack to drink only one cup of coffee, saying two in a subject of a nervous temperament may well bring about an untimely sense of urgency, a need that cannot be satisfied or relieved, however imperative. So <laughs> good advice for all of us on that big job interview or whatever, you know, yeah. one cup of coffee, right? Yes. And, and maybe also when you're in your autumnal years, as Jack perhaps could be said to be by now, you know. You don't want to be getting the bladder too full at those critical moments. Oh, boy. How delicate. Yeah, I, re- I resemble that remark. <laughs> <laughs> Anyhow, uh, it's it's not only about managing his coffee intake, but it's also about managing his spirits, I think. They're walking towards Whitehall, and Jack is really not at ease. He's not at ease in the civilian clothes that he's wearing. He's not at ease in his mind still either. And right before they turn the last corner, I'm like, I- I've got no idea why Stephen held all this kind of reassurance and advice back until this point, but something to do with O'Brien creating the story for us, I think. But Stephen, as they turn the last corner, turns to him and says, listen, five of the committee members are my friends. They're all benevolently inclined towards you. None of the others are hostile towards you, and all of them know your reputation as a sailor. And therefore, he assures Jack, this will not be what he calls a serried interrogation, which is a nice way of conjuring up the image of a row of soldiers lining up to question Jack. This will not be an interrogation. The important people already know what they need to know, and he explains how officialdom works. Like so many other meetings, this is very largely to endow what has already been decided with unanimous official approval. And we, we don't get any further insight into how this conversation went, uh, how, how Jack responded and whether he was actually reassured by this or not, Mike, because... We tumble straight from there into the committee itself. We do, we do, and, but I, I do love Stephen sort of pausing right before they go in to say it's kind of that uh, the equivalent. Take a deep breath, okay? Yeah, now, it's gonna be all right. But you know that turns out to be exactly the way the meeting goes. O'Brien tells us that Sir Joseph Blaine and what he describes as an intelligent man from the Foreign Office work together to direct the meeting. Now, Jack doesn't follow some of the confused talk between the departments that are represented, but it says he doesn't regret the loss. (laughs) The chairman, towards the end of the meeting, a bit unsure of Jack's political sense by land, asks if Captain Aubrey completely understands the position. And Sir Joseph Hmm. assures him that, you know, the captain does, that Dr. Matron has explained it clearly to him. Chairman says, well, then we're all in agreement. 
He terminates the session, leaving the rest of the Treasury and the hydrographer and the procurement office and wishes Captain Aubrey a calm, prosperous voyage and a happy return. I'm thinking, man, as meetings go, this is this is pretty sweet. Yeah, that sounds very sweet. And again, we don't get any insight into how Jack responded or the rate at which his blood pressure finally subsided, except that we know the following day, they're going to the Admiralty and Jack is feeling a lot better. He's not in civilian clothes anymore. He's in uniform and he's on familiar territory. The porter, who of course knows him by name, is delighted that Jack is not just another officer asking to see the First Lord to petition for a ship. The First Lord's got no room to see anyone anyway. And uh, Jack is sent on to see Sir Joseph. Sir Joseph asks after the doctor, congratulates Jack on what Stephen knew all along or what we now know as well was the unanimous approval that came in from the committee. They had to go then and visit an aged official of great seniority. And I like this connection to the fact that he's got a big office and a nice carpet that says that he's one of the muckety mucks here. And this official has all the necessary papers ready for Jack's signature. He's very proud of how he's got all the bits of paper lined up. The last of them reaffirms that Jack's suspension will be cancelled at once in the event of war between England and any other power. Again, stick a pin in that notion. There, Sir Joseph, says this very elderly civil servant, as expeditious a piece of work as ever I have seen, such a comfort to an orderly mind. With this he bowed. It was a wonderful display of exactly regulated celerity, said Sir Joseph. Like a well-ordered broadside, said Jack, I am deeply obliged to you, sir. <laughs> and the, the official, I think he's grateful to have the praise, but it, it doesn't set much store on any praise coming from a, a mere sailor. The official, it says, gave a wintry smile, bowed again, and opened the door for them. <laughs> gotta, gotta love a bureaucrat, Mike, especially an efficient one. <laughs> right, right. Well, so Joseph takes Jack along to the hydrographer's quarters. And and this conversation, not not quite as efficient because you know, Jack yeah. and the hydrographer are having a great time talking together here. But then after that, Jack leaves the building and O'Brien describes him as still in something of a daze from that earlier series of orders, instructions, dockets, and other papers that he'd received and signed for and by which he was now bound. You know, he tells Stephen when he meets up with him that he thought there would be, you know, perhaps more conversations, maybe a meeting with the Fourth Lord, perhaps an opportunity for him to put in, you know, a humble request of his own. But he says, and O'Brien writes, I was packed up like a parcel and here I am, changed in a little over five minutes from a person of fairly high on the post captain's list to a man removed from it, lent to the hydrographic department and told to proceed to Chile in the hired vessel surprise within seven calendar months from the present day there to survey the coast and islands. My proceedings being at all times subordinate to the requirements of the political officer. Ah, we know Stephen. <laughs> My pay, however, will continue fully until the end of this lunar month, after which only half can be claimed or expected. So here I am, tapping his swollen bosom, you know, where all these papers are, as free as the air and strangely uneasy. Yeah. So they've been, you might say set free, but I think in Jack's heart, they've been separated from all of the attachments and the ties that bind them to the family of the Royal Navy. And for all it's nicely contracted, Jack's feeling like not, not okay about this. Right. Stephen reports a, 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 an experience that he describes as similarly disturbing. The person responsible for hiring vessels on behalf of his majesty received me, says Stephen, instantly agreed to the sum I proposed, gave me a bill at 90 days for the first quarter's hire, and bade me good day. He even wished me a pleasant voyage. 
<laughs> He's kind of mystified by this. It's all very transactional, and I think they would perhaps appreciate it if there was a bit more ceremony, especially for Jack, about this moment of setting himself a little bit apart from the rest of the Navy. Jack says to Stephen, well, what do you say to dropping by the prize agent? Because we're probably in funds here. We could buy some presents for the family and then treat ourselves to a chase all the way to Wilcombe. And we know from the past that that's a bit of an indulgence. And Stephen considered for a moment, of course, because he's a cheapskate now that he's rich, considered for a moment and returning the smile, he said, with all my heart. Yeah. Oh. Well, it, it's interesting. O'Brien then, you know, starts to give us this long description about their being at home. And he tells us that Jack quickly adapts to life ashore. Uh, he says that, you know, people who didn't know him would think he's just an ordinary country gentleman, despite the fact that he's, you know, he takes the surprise to young Stepping's arm with a scratch crew from Shelmerston. He's going up there every Wednesday to check on him. So he's still very much, you know, connected to the, the ship and the mission here. But looks like this country gentleman. Stephen, however, in his old tattered naval surgeon's coat, which, you know, he says still has plenty of life left in it, is the one people that it would have take for a seaman, despite this beautiful Arab filly he rides everywhere. And, and, and you mentioned this is probably Lala, right? I, I guess. I mean, she's she's been she was a bit of a character right at the beginning of this story. She caused Stephen all kinds of troubles, if you remember, right at the beginning of the Commodore. So. That's well, I, I will tell you, there's nothing like a fine horse to set you up. I, you know, I just spent Maybe. three days on an Irish draft cross named Blue, who was an absolute tonic for me. He was just awesome. <laughs> ah, wonderful. So, tonic for you and a tonic for Stephen here as well. They recall coming home in the past and how amazed everyone had been to see them. They recall how it threw the women so out of countenance for the men to arrive. And I, I love this little a reminder of Jack's lack of perspective when it comes to females. I had no idea, he said. I had no idea women could get on so well together. Just women alone. Perhaps nunneries are like that. <laughs> that makes me laugh. Yeah, Jack, as, as you've shown previously in this book, you still have no idea what's going on with women. <laughs> The families are delighted. It's peace. You know, Jack and Stephen are going to be home forever. They're going to help raise the children. But their joy is quickly short-circuited when they learn that their men are off to Chile as soon as the barky is ready. And Stephen credits himself for calming them down by saying they'd only be gone maybe six months to a year and that the government was being extraordinarily liberal. Jack thinks that, no, what turned the tide was him telling them that they could all come with them as far as Madeira, you know, vacation on the island for a week or two before returning on the packet when Jack and Stephen sail away. And Jack says Sophie and the children are wild to go abroad. Indeed. And Stephen says, yes, they are excited. They've been asking him Portuguese words. They've been wanting to get the local language. They've been chanting these Portuguese um, words all day. But he says, Jack isn't giving Sophie the credit that she deserves. She doesn't want to see Jack yellowed and knows that the service and the possibility of distinction are the best insurance he could get against it. And Jack acknowledges this. I think he says that uh, she knows, Sophie knows that hoisting his flag is the only thing that will make him happy, will make him feel that his career is a success. But he believes his brilliant words about the cruise were the beginning of the light. So Mike, this feels a little bit like holiday vacation anticipation here to me. And it feels a little bit like that moment where, you know, every, everybody's starting to build their slightly different expectations of how the holiday, how the vacation's going to go. 
And I love how Stephen thinks that he's he's kind of turned the crowd. Jack's sure that he's turned the crowd, and and you know, and then Stephen kind of quietly, not to Jack, puts that you know the final dagger into what he how he sees the conversation here. Yeah, <laughs> Stephen, as you say, Mike thinks to himself that Sophie also knows that her husband busy in the South Pacific isn't going to harm himself in the South of Commons, but she doesn't say that because that would betray some, uh, you know, a bit of a confidence from Sophie. And Stephen, who's much more intuitive about the, the two women than Jack could ever hope to be, reflects that actually Diana, who is the daughter of a soldier, understands this world of deployment and advancement and careers and moving around the world. And her only reaction to their plan to get away was to get the fishermen's wives locally to start making Stephen really thick undershirts and drawers of unbleached wool so that he'll be warm and cozy as he rounds the Cape Horn. Nice. Nice. Ah, but I got to sample some of that unbleached wool. We, uh, we watched a sheepdog demonstration and a shearing and, uh, you know, the, the wool products. Unfortunately, not great for Florida, but, you know, for rounding oh. the horn, brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. <laughs> Well, they've got this ongoing work on the ship, and it, it takes a long time. It can't be hurried. And Jack stays busy as justice of the peace. He's trying to be good company for his wife and his children and his friends. And he builds an efficient little observatory for his telescopes. Meanwhile, Stephen Padine and Jack's keeper's grandson make an exhaustive census of the surrounding birds, you know, all around Wolcombe. Diana and Sophie, we hear, are kind of making and receiving the necessary calls. Clarissa is spending her time teaching George and Bridget Latin and French and reading, continuing to read. In autumn, Stephen and Jack, you know, shoot a number of Captain Griffith's former pheasants. Now that his house is shut up and the keepers are all dismissed, so we're glad to hear that. Yeah. And as yeah. it moves into November, Jack and Diana and Stephen are all off hunting with the hounds here. So, you know, we're getting this nice rhythm of life and the changing seasons ashore here. Yeah. And while all of this is going on, preparations are continuing for the journey as well. There's work happening on the ship and it's going to take a long time and it can't be hurried. And here we're going to go back in a minute into the world of seppings and uh, and naval architecture. Jack goes and checks in every week on the ship. And by the way, we, we learn that Christmas has come and gone. And this is one of those unusual moments in the canon when we don't get a reference to plum pudding or mince pies or anything else. One day we learn after Christmas... Stephen rides out to meet Jack on his way back from Portsmouth, where he had been to find copper still in short supply. Stephen greets Jack and says, there's a strange look on your face. Are you sick? Are you mad? And Jack reports this really quite unsettling encounter with what he thought was an old friend. Down in Portsmouth, he'd seen Lord Keith going down to his barge. He'd stepped aside, pulled off his hat and smiled. And Lord Keith had walked right past Jack without a glance or a change of expression. And of course, Lord Keith had been Jack's mentor and sponsor and friend at the senior level way back all the way from the beginning of the canon here. And Jack was really set back by this. It was the coldest, cruelest cut, he said. A man I so admired. By God, that shows how the wind is blowing. No wonder I look yellower still. And Stephen asks then if Lady Keith was there, and Jack says, he gives her, her her family name, Queenie, an even older friend who had almost brought Jack up, that Queenie had walked by leaning on a woman's arm and therefore Queenie might not have seen him since she was watching her step. And 
Jack had not been inclined to call attention to himself and call out to them. And again, Mike, another echo of what went on at the beginning of the canon when everybody was so careful to avoid the risk of being insulted or disregarded. And Stephen takes a fairly sanguine view of this. He says, well, remember that Lord Keith's almost 70. Uh, he's headed over to take command of the Mediterranean station. He's got lots of details weighing on his mind. And, and Jack then turns to better news, to an update on the refit of the surprise down at Young Seppings' yard. The hull is going to be finished next week, reports Jack, and he gives us a little detail that I really enjoyed picking up. He says, the copper is in hand, 2,000 odd sheets of it and 1,700 weight of countersunk nails together with 10 reams of paper to go under the plates. And Mike, this is another great little um, set of O'Brien Easter eggs that I had read past without much attention before. And I think we all know the idea that ships of the time were coppered, were plated with copper. So the copper sheets were all kind of what you would have expected. But I was interested in this reference to paper. Now, I didn't understand about the role of paper under coppering until I dug into it a bit more. First of all, by the way, if you look at the history of coppering the ships of the Royal Navy, there's a nice little O'Brien connection here. In 1779, the Navy board controller, a fellow by the name of Charles Middleton, had petitioned King George to get the king's shipped for this new scientific innovation of coppering of warships. And he took with him a model to illustrate how it would work on a coppered warship. And the model that he took was a model of HMS Bellona. So, ah. so Jack's, yeah, Jack's command of only just recently. But there's more. In the 18th century, the Royal Navy of all the navies in the world had become a pioneer in using copper to, to sheathe the hulls of warships. But there was a catch. Ships that were coppered at the time had all originally been built with iron bolts in the major timbers of the hull. And if you put copper and iron together in close proximity in the presence of salt water, you get galvanic corrosion. That's the name that we call it now. And iron bolts would corrode away to nothing. So in the early decades of coppering, it was discovered that adding a layer of paper beneath the copper could prevent this. So that sounds like a win for O'Brien in the shipbuilding authenticity stakes, right? Well, almost, because we're not done yet. Those of you who are listening who know your naval construction history are no doubt pounding the table right now and going, no, no, no. In 1786, the Navy had a campaign of re-bolting all of their ships with bolts made of a zinc-copper alloy. So a British warship in 1813 would have had alloy bolts and would not have needed the paper. Well, yes, so thought I. But the surprise, of course, was a French ship captured in 1796. So it's entirely plausible that she would still have had iron bolts and that paper might yet be needed underneath her coat of copper. So a very crafty win for Patrick O'Brien. And I'm, I, I would quibble with how he estimated how many reams of paper he needed, but let's not, let's not carp when we're, when we're on a roll. I think O'Brien did a really nice job there guiding us towards this nice little historical detail about shipbuilding. Brilliant. Brilliant. And I, 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 you know, I'm listening to this and, and imagining myself, you know, being the guy who finds out about this corrosion as, as all my bolts are, are, you know, kind of going away as we're yeah, sailing yeah, around. Yeah. Ouch. Well, Seppings thinks that he's going to be done the first or second week of February. And Stephen's glad because he's learned that the Chilean friends will be in Funchal by the end of the month or the first days of March. Jack says it's beautiful in Madeira in March. And the two discuss all the things that they want to show the children there. And Jack 
wraps up with all that's left to do now is to go to Shelmerston and recruit some of the best old surprises. So this is this is getting oh, exciting. This is getting the band back together. Ah, oh, wonderful. The, the winter is going by quite quickly. It's soon the second week in February. Um, Sophie Blesser is working hard to have everything ready. Jack returns home and reports that his lieutenants, the three that he's picked out, Harding, Summers and Huell, are happy to come along. I had a flash of sort of sadness there that Pullings wasn't going to ship as a lieutenant. But right. I think he's been he's been in command enough now that it's a bit past the point where he can still say that he's acting as a sort of honorary first lieutenant. Anyhow, these three officers are going to come along. The ship and the crew are ready and they can go aboard tomorrow. Now, it takes a little bit longer than that to finish getting ready. But finally, and remember, this is not just Jack and Stephen. This is the whole set of the two families. Everybody's ready to head for pool and to head for the surprise. And Mike, I, I really loved O'Brien's description of their first encounter after the refit with the surprise. It was a beautiful little character moment. At the view of the surprise, it says in the text, Bridget put her hand gently on Sophie's knee and whispered, There she is. Sophie awoke instantly and saw the little frigate whole, full-on, newly painted, her yards exactly square, her sails furled in the bunt. She might have been waiting for the king, or now, alas, the prince regent, to come aboard with a covey of admirals, holding her breath as she did so. And, of course, her people had been watching for the fine green coach driven by a lady. And Mike, this was a really nice kind of ah moment for me. The, the image of a regenerated, renewed, clean and whole and sound HMS Surprise, or now as she is HM Hired Vessel Surprise, was, was really nice. Life has been moving on. Time has been taking its toll in a way on our main characters. There are some events coming up in the next book that are going to remind us pretty squarely about how that can be. And I don't know, maybe I'm overstretching here, but I think that we're getting a bit of light relief from all the aging and the ravages of time by thinking about surprise herself as a character. There's been all this change and passing of time for our human heroes and maybe also for our author. You know, at this stage in his life, O'Brien was very much coming to terms with the fact that he was a very elderly person at this point. Everyone is older. Everyone's a bit more worn out. Uh, Bondon's got an extra wrinkle in his arse, as he would say. And maybe this is one chance to say there is a character in this story that can experience complete renewal and rebirth. And it's the surprise. Here she is, reborn and fresh and new, even though the rest of us are getting a bit old and wrinkled. And if I can go a little bit deeper, <laughs> and tell me what you think about this, Mike. This whole renewal of the surprise and this emphasis on the story of the copper and the paper and the timber and the cordage and the spars made me think about the ship of Theseus paradox. And this is the idea that you know, maybe when you change all of the components of something over time, it might not be, or maybe it is still the same thing. So with new timber and sails and cordage and bolts and copper and paper, is the surprise still the same ship? I think that O'Brien wants us to think that she is. I think we should be happy that the surprise's identity is still there, even if her fabric has changed and been renewed. Uh, and maybe that takes us back as well to Stephen's conversation back in Master and Commander about identity being something that hovers between a man or a ship on the one hand and the view that others have of her or him on the other hand. And it's a, a really nice moment. I really appreciated how hard O'Brien has worked to keep surprise 
present in the story as a character because huh, we get moments like this as a result. Well, and, and it's interesting now in thinking about that, I think that's a brilliant insight here that the reference now to the paper makes me think, ah, she still has her original iron bolts. You know, she's new, yeah. she's different, but she's still, you know, it, it's a heart of oak. There's also a heart of iron here. And and hopefully Jack himself, you know, though aging, still has his iron bolts, if you will. You know, not, and, and again, no newfangled innovation, none of this copper zinc, none of this, uh, you know, that sort of thing. But it was funny because you had mentioned this ship of Theseus and the night before I'd been watching the show Sweet Magnolias, which is as far okay. from the world of, of, of Aubrey Matron. And there'd been a ship of Theseus reference in here and a reference to Discworld. And I'm thinking, oh my gosh, the fact that these two worlds would come together in ship yeah. of Theseus is, uh, is brilliant. But I do love this, this idea, as you say, as we're thinking about all these characters and the surprise being so symbolic here, you know, what's the continuity, what's new and what's changing. And as you say, and it's, boy, it's a, it's, you know, without any spoilers, it's a fabulous setup to the fact that, you know, we could, we could expect some, perhaps some changes in the next two books. Yeah. 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 And uh, I'm sure it's not, not an accident. This is all juxtaposed with Jack and Stephen being with their families, being with the next generation as well. And yes. you know, that's, that's extra light and extra joy and extra comfort here. Right, <sighs> right. And the whole, you know, the fire will be the same at Black's with George, you know, when George yeah. is a member and grown. Yeah, this continuity is really amazing here. Well, and, and, and we get, as always, when O'Brien's given us this great thing to think about, he, you know, switches the switch, gives us a little something light. And so, you know, he talks about how the crew is all set up to welcome the families aboard with the quiet formality of an ocean going yacht, you know, rather than the stamp and clash of Marines, because this is a private vessel now, but Bridget kind of burst free races over to greet all of her old shipmates from the Ringle. And, and that kind of, you know, changes it for everybody. And then she starts explaining to George, you know, all the sailors words that she learned on the Ringle and that she learned on the packet that brought her home from Valencia. Harding greets Jack. He compliments the surprise, you know, so this is his first time here. And he asks if she's as weatherly as she looks. And Jack says, well, she despises leeway and she'll lie almost as close to the wind as, and he points over to the dear Ringle, which he says he hates leaving behind. And this obviously alarms Harding, you know, and I, I think Harding, O'Brien tells us, you know, wants to question the wisdom of leaving the Ringle behind, but he, you know, you don't question your captain here not on the deck with the whole family and everything here yeah. and to acknowledge yeah. harding's restraint which jack sees jack says what well, you know we fully coppered the blue cutter and she should do very well if we step her mass six inches forward so you know i, I love how you know that the, the the families the naval families the uh, regular families are coming back together and then yeah. o'brien yeah. comes back to this theme of the surprise tells us that stephen with his fortune restored has given the ship all she wished, and that Jack has seen to it that all the gaps that only a seaman could perceive have also been closed here. Mm -hmm. And then we get this kind of introduction to this phenomenal scene, Ian, that, that you know, they're warping out into the harbor. 
Bridget is calling out all the sails to George as they're, you know, kind of setting sail here. And then she's correcting him out loud whenever he looks at the wrong one. And I'm, I'm kind of cringing <laughs> a little bit here because, you know, I can just see George like, oh, no. And O'Brien tells us George grows a little sullen with Bridget's superiority. But as the surprise moves into the sea and starts to tear along, O'Brien writes all of his, all of George's sweetness and candor returns. And he swears to himself that as soon as it's okay, he's going up to the masthead. This is great, isn't it? Uh, we had this with Bridget, ooh, last book, I think. Um, we haven't had very much practical sign of this great love and admiration between George and Jack. George has always been the one who's there with his dad and admiring and looking up to him. But he hasn't really been back in the world of Jack to enjoy it and to take on the mantle a little bit. So this is a really excellent bit of father-son moment here. Jack then takes George up to the topmost cross trees, placing his feet from below. And it's a fine day, so George can see a long way. The horizon is 15 miles away, and Jack points out the Isle of Wight. And the text talks about how George's response touched Jack. George's look of ecstasy touched his heart, meaning Jack's heart. And presently he said, some people don't quite like being up here just at first. Oh, sir, cried George, I don't mind it. And if I may, I shall go right up to the very top. God love you, said Jack, laughing. You shall quite soon, but not until you're perfectly at home up to the cross trees. And then Jack goes on with this nice introduction to his son of all the things that they're going to see. And George is laughing with joy as he's repeating the names of these different things that they're going to encounter. And when at last, he says, when at last he could be prized off the cross trees and so down through the main top, and by way of the ladder-like shrouds, he slid the last few feet to the deck by the topmast breast backstay like his father. Dusting his hands, he looked up at Jack with a glowing face and said, Oh, sir, I shall be a sailor too. There is no better life. I might, there's a lot going on here to be happy with. There's this juxtaposition of George arriving on the ship. And we remember the first time that Bridget was aboard ship with her father. George is spending his first time as a, as a mature child on ship with his father. He absolutely is his father's son, right? He's living in the moment. He's not the most swift and insightful of thought, but this is, you know, this, this, this is a, a, a mini Jack, somebody with a love for, for life. And I think also with a great admiration for the father, and that's that's obviously a bit of a digression from the connection that Jack had with his father, with the general. There's there's some real, real genuine warm connection here between George and Jack. And I I noticed as well the setting that they're in. They're up high, they're in the rigging. And I'm thinking of what we've read about in in the recent chapters here. And I was thinking, well, maybe a different Jack Aubrey, maybe a 21st century Jack Aubrey, maybe a Jack Aubrey written by a more melodramatic and cheap-minded writer would have had a, a, a cautious moment here thinking about Gagan and falling and risk and might then have even stopped his son going aloft or at least had a sort of a, a quiet moment. But no, Jack's laughing and smiling. At no point does he got any doubt that it's a good and right thing for George to embrace the life and to embrace the risk and live in the moment. And that's great characterization of Jack in the absence of things that he says. <laughs> and yeah. therefore, yeah, good good, good writing by O'Brien. Hear him, hear him. Yeah, <laughs> I, I couldn't agree more. Oh. Well, you know, 
there's this fabulous writing on and on about the beautiful sailing. And, you know, they say even the one day that the wind fails, they're greeted by this great school of dolphins there. Uh, On that day, Bridget looks down, she sees a sea turtle in the water, and now she's really worried. She's heard of turtle soup before, but (gasps) Stephen assures her it's a hawk's bill. They don't eat that one. And, you know, this long, beautiful description ends saying, that evening, hands sang and danced upon the forecastle until the watch was set, ending a day that might have been designed to steal a boy's heart away. George had been twice to the main top cross trees with Bondin, and the only thing wanting for perfection was a whale. But then O'Brien tells us, instead of a whale, they get they get a nice substitute. In the morning, they see an island on the horizon, and it's got a mountain tipped with snow right in the middle of the island. And and they're looking at this as they're standing there in their shirt sleeves at breakfast, you know, so it's, you know, the snow up there, they're down here on the sea. And as they're watching, they're looking forward and the cliffs of Madeira are drawing closer. So beautiful, beautiful writing, beautiful journey, families all together, you know, kind of a great moment of love and peace and wonderfulness in the midst of all this turmoil. Yeah. And and the kids, I don't know whether they've ever been to sea out of sight of land. They've, they've certainly never been to a foreign country before. So this is them seeing, you know, foreign land on the horizon for the first time. I, I, I don't want to underestimate that this must have been a really special moment for them as well. Anyhow, it's Madeira. It's Funchal, the capital harbour town of Madeira. And Stephen, as they enter the harbour, points out all the fruit trees to the children, points out the unusual dress of the inhabitants. And meanwhile, Jack and Harding, with a naval gaze, are looking around the harbour at all the British men of war. There's Pomone, a 38. There's Dover, a 32. There are two corvettes, Rainbow and Ganymede. There's quite a potent little force here. And going ashore on the launch, Stephen points out their Chilean friends on the shore there. They're waving. He points them out to Jack. The Chileans welcome the party. They welcome the ladies and say, you are all our guests for your time on the island. And he guides them to an oxen-drawn sledge that's going to take them to an English hotel. And Mike, I, I had never heard of an auction-drawn sledge on Funchal or anywhere else, so I'm, I'm, this, this, that's so odd that it must be authentic. <laughs> and, <laughs> and anyway, the, the, the travelogue continues here. The Chileans get to show Jack and Sophie and Clarissa and the children the wonders of Funchal, while Stephen goes in to speak with the surgeon of HMS Pomone. Glover, the surgeon, tells Stephen that he had recently been aboard the Queen Charlotte and Sherman, we remember Sherman, who was looking after Admiral Stranraer, had asked Glover to look over the Admiral. And this rapid recovery had taken place, and everybody was super happy with that. But the Admiral had gotten hold of the Digitalis. And just as Stephen has always feared about sailors and their overdosing, had started dosing himself, had refused to listen to Sherman's warnings, had been barely lucid when he'd been seen by Glover, consuming great quantities of Digitalis, a really, really dangerous drug to overdose mm-hmm. on. And Stephen says, well, I'm going to take care of this. I'll write to Sherman straight away. I'll recommend lauding them to manage the Admiral. Yeah, because we know that's going to work. <laughs> I'd recommend some shore leave for the Admiral. And he's obviously thinking to take the Admiral away from his source of digitalis and his inclination to overdose himself. And shore leave, says Stephen. Or the grave, says Glover in a low voice, meaning this is a this is a, <laughs> a life-threatening decision that, uh, that the Admiral's putting himself through here. And meanwhile, he says, will you come and take a look at the captain's wound? So there's a, there's a little bit of you know life as a naval surgeon going on here for Stephen Maturin. Yeah. 
And over the next few days, the Chileans are like showing the families around the island at this breakneck pace, and everybody is exhausted. It's like you know they're cr- you know crunching all this stuff in, and they know that the captain wants his family to see everything, and they want to get Jack away to Chile as quickly as possible. So I think yeah. say, you know, yeah, we'll, we'll make this two week tour about a three day thing here, and sitting there the second evening, you know, kind of trying to figure out how, how do we get away from this breakneck pace. Jack sees this Zebek come tearing into the harbor with this extraordinary press of sail. Uh, and he's going, you know, this guy's going to be fouling some cables here. What's what's going on? Well, soon after, a young lieutenant from the Zebek finds Jack and presents him with a note from Admiral Keith, the, the new head of the Mediterranean here. Jack takes it to his room and reads it. O'Brien writes, it was dated Royal Sovereign at sea, 28 February, 1815, and it ran my dear Aubrey, Tom Coxon tells me that I walked straight past you on Common Hard the other day. I'm hardly sorry for it because it might have looked intentional, might have led to a misunderstanding. However, a particular friend of yours and Dr. Matron's at the Admiralty told me where to reach you. So I trust I can put that inadvertence and some other things right, for this is the moment when we have need of good officers. Napoleon escaped from Elba the day before yesterday. You are to take all his majesty's ships and vessels at present in Funchal, under your command, hoisting your broad pennant in Pomone, and as soon as Brysis joins you, proceed without the loss of a moment to Gibraltar, there to block all exits from the straits by any craft whatsoever until further notice. And for so doing, the enclosed order shall be your warrant. With our very best wishes to you and Mrs. Aubrey, most sincerely yours, Keith. At the bottom, a familiar hand had written, Dearest Jack, I'm so happy for you. Love, Queenie. End of chapter 10. End of the Yellow Admiral. Wow. <laughs> Turned on a sixpence, right? My goodness, yes. Did not see that coming. <laughs> and, and and very cleverly, we, we've had all kinds of you know potential warnings and things being planted that might pay off later and we had only just i think if you look back through the book very very little sign apart from the fact that we know something might be coming in the real world that we're, we're going to be some, whatever happens next is going to be close to the real world timeline we've zipped straight to february 1815 so that was christmas 1814 that we've just had there so he's very craftily popped us up here and napoleon is at large <sighs> great a great way to end the book great way to end the chapter and a great way to keep us going with this, you know, what's going to happen with Jack's career. It almost looked like it was all sort of tied up. He was going to go and do the Cochrane thing in Chile. But now this new thing. And we did have signposted that, you know, at several stages, the deal with the Chileans, he always right. has to get out. You'll always be okay if we yank you back and we, we call you back to service in the event of some war with some foreign power. Well, here it is. I, I also love the fact, as, as I've mentioned, Mike, that we get the surprise coming back all shiny and new and, and, and a fresh character. Yeah. And, and, and I love this family time together. You yeah. know, we've seen a bit of Bridget, not so much of Diana. We know she's along, but we're not hearing about her. We've got Sophie. We've got Jack and George. Don't see the daughters at all. But we've got this family time together. And so the war isn't over. It's not peace. Things are calling back to action here. Here we go. And uh, I, I, I can't wait. I can't wait to move forward. But 
we're not going directly there quite yet, are we, Ian? No, we're not. So next week, we have a really interesting special episode for you. Before we get to turn over the pages of book 19, um, we're going to bring you another Crossing the Line special. And this one's going to be all about audiobooks. We've got some really great special guests joining us to talk about the world of the audiobook narrator, about the experience of being an audiobook author, about the perspective of the listener, um, and also about how love for audiobooks first became a thing, as you might say, for Patrick O'Brien fans over two decades ago. So we're really looking forward to that. We're super excited to bring you these guests. We'll tell you a little bit more as we get closer to the day on social media, but we really hope you're going to enjoy that. Yeah. And a big thank you. We'll, we'll, we'll say it in the episode, but so many of you, uh, listeners, Patreon supporters, have talked about audiobooks and your love of audiobooks. And, you know, we kind of felt, all right, we've got to bring this all together. Amen. Well, once we've brought you that particular treat, we have two books to go. And the next one is The Hundred Days, which sounds remarkably like that time that Napoleon spent, if you will, on the run. Yeah, absolutely. A, a strong clue, I think, in the title that the 100 days that O'Brien's talking about aren't only part of Jack and Stephen's timeline, but also about that famous 100 days in European history. Now, the Yellow Admiral stayed pretty faithful to its title. Yeah, is, is book 19? How, how close to Napoleon's 100 days are we going to be? What, what about the mission to Chile? What about Jack and Sophie and the family? I guess, Mike, there's only one way to find out. What do you say next week? Not just to a chase to Wolcombe, but to some Patrick O'Brien. With all my heart. Sorry, I, I was <laughs> my mind's away. <laughs>